my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to another great episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and today I am joined by Gamal Tarawa, or G. G is a facilitator, speaker, and coach. As the founder, managing director, and lead facilitator for Purple Frog Connections, great name, G delivers workshops and presentations for organizations internationally in both the public and private sector. He's appeared on programs like Good Morning Britain and also on the BBC. G is the subject of the Cherish Oteca's 2021 docudrama, The Black Cop, which tells his story of being the UK's first openly gay Black metropolitan police officer. Hi, G. Welcome. I'm pleased to be here. And thank you for reaching out. Thank you for joining me. I mentioned before the recording that I wasn't aware of uh, your awesomeness or your complete awesomeness until you agreed. But I will tell later how I discovered you. So we'll go from there. But um, how are you? How's your week shaping up so far? Lots accomplished, even though it's only Tuesday. I feel like I've been working all week until Friday. But yeah, I've had a few interviews and a few conversations. And yeah, it's all good. I discovered you through Instagram and the name Purple Frog Connections. And I was like, that is an intriguing name. And then that took me to the interview that you did last September with Serenity. Let me get the name correct. Um, Serenity and Leadership, that interview. And that's when I reached out to you. Am I allowed to ask you about your podcast and how this came about? Of course. I was in Europe for two years. I recently came back to the U.S., about a little over a month ago. My focus is Sweden at this point, but I've been back and forth between there and the UK. You know, as a Black gay man who would like to live in Europe, I, over time, was like, I need to find out more about people that look similar to me and not just in being Black, but also being LGBTQ+. And there's a, a backstory why Sweden has been my focus I started traveling there several years ago, but two years ago, I decided to take a leap of faith and try my hand and seeing if I could make Sweden home for me. But anyway, this podcast came about with me, of course, through traveling, I've discovered that there's Black people everywhere, but I wanted to know specifically more about the Black LGBTQ plus community. And I already have a podcast I, I do with my friend Jenny about introversion. And so last year, the idea came to me to start this one. And it kind of was a, I don't want to call it a spiritual moment, but a moment where the idea came to me and then all of these things started flooding in and I started writing them down. And then like a couple months later, I had my first episode, which was uh, someone who's in the UK. And actually, I think most of my guests have been from the UK by chance. So, okay. Okay. I'll have to check them out, see how many of them I know. I'm very grateful to the support that I've been getting from my fellow Black brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom. So thank you. I mentioned that I discovered you through the interview 
that you did and you talked about intersectionality and that really pulled me into the conversation that you had with Tom as being a black man, being a gay man. And then I think there was one more adjective that you used. So what does intersectionality mean for you? If I'm honest, I'm kind of on the fence with the definition because I look at it and I think I don't separate myself. I am just one person. All of these things are part of my identity. I don't wake up one morning thinking I'm a gay man or I'm a black man or I'm a man. I just wake up and think I'm G. Mm, yeah. Right. But it's how other people interpret that and how other people put you into boxes. You belong in this box or you belong in that box or you belong in the other box. And that's the part of it that frustrates me. I thought of like a recipe, something as simple as like a cake. You don't separate everything. You think of the complete final product. I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it because yeah, in my daily life, when say is something as simple, when I get up in the morning, I don't look at myself in the mirror and say, oh, I'm black or I'm gay or I'm whatever. It's just, I'm Eric. You're a person. See the whole being and not just part of the person. Have you found in your work as a facilitator, as a speaker, that you have people that try to separate that in a way that doesn't see you as a full person? Yeah, but then I soon change their mind. When I stand in front of an audience or a group or anything like that, I want you to see me as a complete package. And the way I do it is I'm authentically me. I try and be the whole me as I can. You know, hopefully by the time I start engaging, people forget all the other aspects. They just see G. They engage with G. That's when the magic happens for me. Mm, okay. Then we start to hear each other a lot clearer. And one of the beauties of this work for me is connecting with people on a level beyond the labels. Connecting with who people are, not what people are. A who and a what, that actually stumped me for a second, <laughs> which helps me to see maybe I need to work on that a little bit more. Mm. I got a little ahead of myself with Purple Frog Connections. You're the founder of this. Is this where you do all of your work as a public speaker? Through my company, yeah. And I'm pleased to say that 99% of my business is referrals. So I must be doing something right. As always, <laughs> a pat on the back. <laughs> so what does Purple Frog mean? Well, the story of Purple Frogs was when I was in the police, one of my roles earlier, I was a trainer, you know, training new recruits when they came in. Mm -hmm. And I've always been the kind of person where I think, how do I make this memorable? I want you to walk out with something deeper than that was a good talk. I want you to walk out with a feeling or a vibe or a thought or something that just sits with you. And when I used to train in recruits, I used to think of different ways of trying to engage them on that level. One time I walked in on the first day and I just lied down in the middle of the room on the floor. And I decided to deliver the whole session lying on the floor. As a police officer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but people remember it. Yeah. Another time I walked in dressed as uh, Morpheus from The Matrix. I got this long leather coat and I had dark glasses on. 
And I just walked in and I just stood in front of the class for about three minutes and said nothing. The Michael Jackson move. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it was all about creating that vibe that they would go away thinking that was different. There was something different about that. So I'm going to remember that. And one day I had this idea. I don't know how the idea came. Was, you know, the best ideas just appear. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and they were all sitting there and I said, right, I want you all to give yourselves a round of applause for being successful and getting here. And first of all, I got this. And I'm sort of like, no, I don't think you understood what I said. You've been successful. People have failed. You've made it. Give yourself a round of applause. Congratulate yourself. So then it got a bit more enthusiastic. I said, in fact, everyone stand up and congratulate each other in the room. And this buzz started to come in the room. Everyone was like, congratulations. And then as I sat down, I said, doesn't it feel good to feel good? Hmm. That feeling you have, I'm going to give it a name. And that name is Purple Frogs. And every time you feel good, you feel that vibe, you've got to shout out Purple Frogs. And when you shout it out, the rest of the class has to cheer to celebrate it with you. So you keep in that vibe. And so for me, Purple Frogs is those moments, conversations, experiences that make us forget what we are and make us appreciate who we are. If I go into international classrooms, for example, I always try and find out what can I do to make the whole room laugh? Because we all laugh in the same language. (laughs) That's true. So, and when I can get that laughter in the room, it breaks down the barriers. So then we can start to connect. We're starting to see who we are. So Purple Frogs for me is stepping into that space where we can have courageous conversations, where we can actually hear each other, where we can respect each other. You know, even if it's just for a day, when people walk out, I say, look, if you felt respected, loved, appreciated in this session, that shows you that it works. Now take it out and do something with it. Be open, be courageous, ask those questions, have those debates, express those views. Let's work with them. Let's be honest about them. Let's get uncomfortable, knowing at the end of this session that discomfort will allow us to walk away with a different way of looking at the world or appreciating different things. So that's what Purple Frogs is about, in a nutshell. So many things came to mind, but when you were training, you created a community. It was less about ego and more about how can I help people discover themselves in, in the best way possible. I don't know if you were aware of that then, but I, I definitely sense that like there's this innate gift of helping people to find themselves. The only person you can be is you. I don't know how much of my story you're aware of, but in, I think it was about 2001, 2002, I almost committed suicide. I didn't, in case you're wondering. It took me to a place where I realized that up until that point, I was trying to be who I thought people wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. And the only person who hadn't told me who I was, was me. And that was a shocker. I never realized up until that point that I could define myself. I thought I had to be defined by what's happening around me. Something inside me just flipped. And it was at the time when I embraced my sexual orientation as well. Okay. And one of the things I had to learn to say to myself was, actually, my sexual orientation and my color, they're mine. 
I should be defining what they mean to me, not other people. And I remember reading a quote by, you must have heard of Bayard Rustin. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a quote that he said, which just hit me hard. And it was along the lines of, I'm going to paraphrase, I don't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of, if I did not come out, I realized by not coming out, I was part of the homophobia that was holding me back. And I was like, oh, wow, that is just so powerful. If I don't come out and say, this is who I am, then I'm helping the homophobes to keep me in the closet. And that was a big mind shift. I love good questions. I love powerful questions. You know, questions that take you off and you're sort of like, I'll get back to you in a year's time. <laughs> yeah. And somebody said to me, your sexual orientation or your life, do you see it as a joy or a burden? Because either way you look at it, it will determine the life you live. I suppose I started to get to this place where I started to look at life and think, okay, things are going to happen to me but I can decide how I react or respond to them. Okay. I may not be able to control what's happening, but I can control how I respond. And the most powerful example of that for me happened when my father died. My father was Nigerian, Muslim, and I'm the only son. I had come out a few months before my father died. My father was one person I hadn't told because he was very ill at the time. And I felt that if I did tell him and he died, everybody would blame me for killing him. So I chose not to say anything to him. And I thought, I'm not going to give them that satisfaction because there was already some tension in the family around it. Anyway, so when he died, I came back to the house, the family home, and all the relatives were there, you know, as they do, congregating. All the men were in one room and all the women were in the other room. One of my uncles uh, was reading passages from the Quran and they were saying prayers and all this sort of stuff. And I'm sitting there and I'm just listening. And then he turned to me after everything and he said, right, you're here. You're the only son of your father. Why aren't you married? Why don't you have kids? What's wrong with you? And I remember sitting there looking around this room. There's about 50 odd people here. And suddenly this massive spotlight came on me. And these were people that I have known all my life. And some of them used to help my father to beat me when I was a kid. So there were people there that I've grown up in fear of. And I still had that fear. And I remember sitting down and in my head, I'm having this thing. What am I going to say? How am I going to manage this? Oh gosh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And while I'm having this argument in my head, it was like my mouth decided, well, I'm not going to wait for you lot. I'm going to take charge. And my mouth just says, actually, I'm gay. And I remember sitting there looking at my mouth thinking, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and it was just like this other part of me just came out and just jumped out into the middle of the room. And then the room just went silent. And then suddenly it was like, a tsunami of anger and hatred started rolling into the room and it started rolling across the room towards me and it got to about two or three feet in front of me and it was like something magical happened mm. it was almost like this shield suddenly came up and just blocked everything and I suddenly felt 
the most incredible peace I've ever felt in my life. My fear just disappeared. Suddenly, these people that I'd seen as giants suddenly looked like little puppets. And it was almost like, oh my God, I've taken the power out of your bigotry. And then I just kept saying to them, you know what? You are entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to your views in the same way I'm entitled to reject them. You have no input into my life whatsoever. So why should I allow you to tell me what to do? And I remember feeling 10 feet tall. And that was a lesson that stalkered me. I can be me. I can be me. And it was just freedom. And then the other side of it comes is that if you're going to be you, you realize you can't blame anybody for anything anymore. And being honest, you found your superpower. The first step was like realizing, okay, if I'm going to be me, I have to accept responsibility for everything I do. One of the things that I think happens, especially if you've got that victim mindset, is I would say responsibility is one of the things that we say we want the most, but we run from the furthest. I want responsibility but actually, I also want a little caveat that says, if it goes wrong, I need someone to blame. That's not responsibility. Responsibility is you take 100% responsibility for everything you say and you do. And that, to me, is the power of it. To kind of tie it back to intersectionality, when you say the labels, is that in line with like saying, if I tie into these labels too much than I'm creating in a lot of ways unconsciously maybe victimhood? I wouldn't say victimhood, but I would say I'm narrowing myself down. Okay. Let me rephrase it. I think our identity is fluid. It isn't fixed. In one situation, if I'm in, in an event with my black gay brothers, then the fact that I'm black and gay becomes significant. But if I'm with my Nigerian family, then the fact that I'm Nigerian or part Nigerian becomes significant. Mm. If I'm with my ex-police colleagues, part of my identity that becomes significant is my police background. The danger comes when somebody decides you only belong in that one box or you only belong in those boxes. Like, for example, this month here in the UK is LGBT History Month. I hate doing talks during LGBT History Month. And the reason why I hate doing talks is because people will say, oh, you're the black gay guy. So you've automatically put me in a box, which means you can't see me for the rest of the year because you've put me in that box that's marked LGBT. I'll give you an example of something that happened recently. We have a group within the company and we want you to come and do a talk. Feel free to ask me questions. I'm uh, <laughs> actively listening. Because <laughs> I can talk for England. No pun intended. Um, but, you know, and they said, oh, could you come and do a talk for our LGBT group? And I said, no, I will come and talk to everybody in your company. I like that. But if the LGBT group want to have a conversation with me afterwards, I'm more than happy to do that. If we're going to talk about inclusion, let's be inclusive. It makes me think of here in the States, the Martin Luther King holiday in January. And I remember once have someone asked me like, oh, 
basically, what are your people going to do for the holiday? And I said, well, he's an American. You wouldn't ask me that for President's Day for any of the presidents that we have holidays for. So I like the way you put that, that you're talking to people. You're not just pigeonholing how you share the message. Mm. You talked about being part Nigerian. Did you grow up in the UK or in Nigeria? The first eight years, I grew up with a white foster family. Then the second eight years, I grew up kind of with my natural parents. So I had this cultural identity confusion because I'd been brought up in a white environment in a little village in Kent where there weren't any other black people. And then suddenly I'm taken out of that environment to a place in London called Halsden, which is a predominantly black area. Oh, I didn't fit in. My father expected me to fit straight in. His attitude was, I'm going to beat you into this box. You know, it was almost like I'm a square peg, round hole, I didn't fit. So my dad's attitude is, I'm going to beat the crap out of you until you do force yourself to fit in that hole. So that was a challenge. And then the next eight years, from 16 to 24, I was sent to live in Nigeria by my father. He told me I was going for a two-week holiday. And then when I got there, after about five weeks, I'm thinking, when am I going back? And my uncle said, you're not coming back. You're staying here now. Your father doesn't want you back. Why were you sent to Nigeria? I think I was getting to a point where my father was starting to find me too challenging. It was his last hurrah at controlling me. His last card in his deck. If I don't play this card, I'm going to lose him. But actually, what happened was he played the card and he lost me. Now, is that from a cultural standpoint between like British and Nigerian? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nigeria was a culture shock for me. It was eight years of my life where I just drifted. I got lost in alcohol. I got lost in drugs. From 16 to 24, they're very formative years. I didn't have any moral guidance. I didn't have anybody to show me what to do. In fact, at one point I was homeless in Lagos, Nigeria, sleeping under a bridge. And I was there for about almost a year, just living under this bridge. And there was one of those kids who would go out begging on the streets. Hmm. So, you know, when you get to a point where you say you've had absolutely nothing, that's where I was. Giving up hope that I'd ever exist anywhere else in the world. I just thought this is where I'm going to die. But, you know, if you believe in the man upstairs, he came along and said, no, I've got other plans for you. This is all part of your training. And then they came back to the UK when I was 24. Came back with a lot of anger. Hated my parents. Hated Nigeria. Hated the fact that I was black. And part of my reason for joining the police was I wanted to be white. And I thought by having that badge, it could make me as white as possible. That was my thinking back then. Now, was identity around being Black, was that connected to growing up in the foster home the first eight years, or was that just... I think it was just a combination of things. My foster parents were very, very loving. There was a lot of hugs. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of fun in the house. They didn't have much in terms of financials, but they had a huge amount of love. My father's house, that wasn't there. So that first eight years, that's what life should be about. And everything after that, I hated because it didn't fit into 
what I was given initially. You had a taste of love, of, of support, of safety, or you knew what it was. Yeah, I knew what it was. And then I, I never had it after that. That built up a resentment and an anger inside me. I was terrified of my dad, absolutely terrified. The best part of the day for me was going to school. The worst part of the day for me was coming home from school because I didn't know what mood my father would be in. We weren't allowed to have toys. We weren't allowed to play. If we weren't studying, we just had to sit there silently. And I was the one who bore the brunt of all of that. My sisters were never touched. And I think it was because, you know, I came from this white background. I had a different view from my sisters. And my father was like, you must see me the way I'm telling you to see me. I see. You must behave in the way I want you to behave. Now, were you in the foster care system in the UK because of that dynamic with your father? I went into foster care when I was seven days old. Just out of the hospital? Yeah. In the UK, in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, 70s, up until the early 80s, there was this thing called PFAs or private fostering arrangements. And it was done primarily by the West African community. You know, they would pay people to look after their kids while they went and studied and did whatever they did. Right? Now, where this came from was back in Africa and Nigeria. You know, there's the phrase, I don't know if you ever heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. So when you go to Nigeria, families live in compounds. Everybody in that compound is almost like takes care of everybody's kids. So when you wake up in the morning, you really don't know whose house you're going to be having dinner in. Now, when people from that country came to the UK, they didn't have that network around them. So this private fostering arrangement kind of filled that cultural need. Okay, I see. And it was seen as the done thing. And there were thousands. In fact, I'm doing some work around that at the moment. There were thousands and thousands of us that had this experience. Out of those thousands, there's been thousands that have become drug addicts or commit suicide or turn to crime because it messed up their identity. For some of them, it was really traumatizing. Compared to some of the stories I've heard, I was pretty lucky. So you went in at seven days old. Did you see your parents or were you aware of your birth parents from that time until you saw them? No, in fact, I didn't see Black people. The village I was in was a little village in Kent, which is like a rural part of the UK. They call it the Garden of England. The only Black people I saw was on TV. And in those days, it was programs like Tarzan or Cowboy in Africa or stuff like that where black people were shown as savages. My foster mother used to say things to me. She'd look at me, she goes, you see, if it wasn't for us, you know, you'd be running around with a bone through your nose. And there were always jokes made about my color and stuff like that. I remember sort of like in being in school and we used to play cowboys and Indians. Uh, and guess who the Indian always was? And I remember going to a teacher one day saying, I want to be a cowboy. And the teacher looked at me and said, oh bless, you're the wrong color. So, you know, even though, you know, there was love, there was also these messages that were reminding me, you're not really one of us. It was very subtle. And when you're a kid, you don't have the filter to block it out or understand it. So you internalize it. 
and it gives you this foundation of I'll always be an outsider. So you were conscious. I don't know if these terms were there, but like, oh, I'm black and they're white. I wasn't conscious of it. No, I didn't become conscious of my color per se, or really conscious of my color until I moved to London. So I just knew I was different. I was a kid. I didn't have that intellectual capacity to look at it in that light. You know, when you're a kid, it's just your normal. I'm going to ask a little bit later about your process with coming out as gay, but you mentioned earlier that when you became a police officer, it was to become white. Uh, I was able to find here the documentary, the docudrama, The Black Cop, and I'm definitely going to send that to as many people I can out here. But can you talk a little bit about your experiences with working with the Metropolitan Police and when you went in was that like a conscious thought of yours well I guess you you did say that (laughs) there's two driving forces here at play on one force which was for me internally there was a deep need to belong somewhere to be part of something and I didn't realize how powerful that need was didn't feel I belonged at home I'd just been moving around and in different places That need met with, when you join the police, there's a very powerful, what's the word I would use? Force, for want of a better phrase, right? That says, you must fit in. And when those two come together, you end up becoming fiercely loyal and you want to do whatever you can to protect that fitting in. It suddenly becomes us against the world. One of my first experiences at the training school was I had some guys come into my room and they said to me, you're the wrong color to be in this job, jokingly. And they held me down and they painted me white. And I loved it because I felt they like me. I now fit in. I'm now part of the group. They feel comfortable with me. That's the way I interpreted it. I would tell jokes about myself or about black people. I would go out and I would try and do whatever I can to show people that I'm not one of them, I'm one of you. What that looks like is that if I spoke to black people, I would be a bit harder, especially if I was with my white colleagues. I would look a bit deeper. But on the other side of that coin, it was a weird dynamic. What it didn't capture in the documentary is that I also had incredible experiences where I helped people in incredible ways, where I know the fact that I was black in those situations had an impact on the way that scenario played out. I joined when there were very few black officers in the Met in London. So it was a weird combination of being a devil and an angel. You've kind of humanized for me that, you know, being a police officer, being a part of that, it's like being in a family. Yeah. And you will hear that all over the world. Police officers were referred to as, this is our family, we're the blue family. Majority of the time, we're dealing with the negative parts of society. Occasionally, you'll deal with something good, right? But you know, most of the time, you're dealing with raw emotion. There's a study, somebody said the study said, the average normal everyday person has about, I think it's something about 12 traumatic incidents in their life up to the age of about 50 or something like that. And I might have got the figures wrong, but you get the point I'm making. A police officer is probably going to be dealing with 12 traumatic incidents a day. The average person, I don't think, really processes that that way. 
Now, with being one of the only Black officers when you joined, were you able to interact or have relationships with them? What do you mean by that? Sorry. Like, did you have connections with them? Yeah, like share experiences. Yeah, but they never really came to my house. There's very few officers that I went to their house or they came to my house. Very few. I don't know whether part of that was also me. Because the early part of my career, I was still in the closet. So there was part of me that didn't want people to get close to me as well, because I didn't want people to find out this secret. Part of it could have been erasing. Part of it is also my instinct for survival. I felt that this secret that I was carrying, I didn't want people to know about it. So I kept people at a distance. So were you aware when you joined within your own internal dialogue that you were gay? Well, I didn't know the term gay, but I knew I was fascinated by men from when I was about five, six years old. Okay. There was a part of me, especially my early years, my teen years, thought it was a phase I was going through. That when I find the right woman, this will go away. I can relate to that. (laughs) Encounters that I had were very brief, very cold and very dismissive. You know, to me, it was all about the sex. It wasn't about any relationship. I was scared to have a relationship. So yeah, I was aware of it, but I just hadn't come to terms with it. Sounds like you were participating in that part of your life, at least from a physical standpoint, even though you weren't publicly out. Yeah, I didn't go to clubs or bars or anything like that. So in joining the force, was part of that connected to, at least I'm thinking in my American mindset, like, oh, if I become a police officer, I'll be more macho, I'll be more manly? I've never been camp. I've always been manly. and I've always been on the masculine side. But partly what you say is correct, because part of it was if people saw a black cop, they wouldn't see a gay man. There was a part of it of hiding behind the uniform. It became my armor, it became my shield, it became my protection to stop me from being me. You talked about with other officers who weren't Black that you found ways to let them know through jokes or whatever that I'm not like this particular type of Black person. Did this affect how you interacted with the public, other Black people when you were on active duty? It probably did. There was a lot of stuff back then that I was doing unconsciously. It was not at the forefront of my mind. If there was a word to describe my mindset back then, it was about survival. It wasn't about living. What do I need to do to not let people see what's in my baggage? You really have some great nuggets that just have given me food for thought for myself. Um, (laughs) that's a good thing (laughs) so kind of get back to 2001 when you came to a point it sounds like where you were ready to come out or it seems like things were happening one of the words that comes to mind when you've shared about some of your experiences a lot of these major moments that happened weren't planned they were organic and it seems like that was an organic moment for you when you were starting to accept yourself more as a gay man It got to a point where I had run out of lies. There's only so many lies you can tell. I started to get confused at who I had told what lie to. I got to this point where they were just crushing me. And I just didn't know how to deal 
I said I had the point where I got to the point of suicide and then after that it was just like all these doors needed to be opened all these doors I'd locked within myself and one of them was the gay door don't ask me how I realized this or why I did this but it was important to me that the first person I need to come out to is myself I need to tell myself that I'm gay and I need to own it I need to embrace it I need to value it because if I didn't and somebody may had a go at it, I would be impacted by that negativity. And that process took me about a year and a half to get rid of the fear, to get rid of the discomfort, to get rid of the baggage, to get rid of the negativity around it and say, this is who you are. Be happy with who you are. Own this. Then that's when I felt, right, now I can tell people. But I didn't have a date in my mind to say, oh, right, I'm going to do this for a year and a half. And then on the 22nd of April, it didn't quite happen like that. I came to work on a Monday morning. And I walked into the office and I worked with this female sergeant, police sergeant. And then she started to talk about her boyfriend. She had had arguments with her boyfriend over the weekend. And she was just so frustrated. You know, men are like this and men are like that. And then she turned around to me and she goes, now, how do you treat all the women you have on the go? In her mind, she felt I had girlfriends everywhere, which I, I kind of helped, you know, reinforce. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the lies, being a big black guy, to let people know I shag around. I'm having sex all over the place because people have that narrative that black guys are sex machines. Yeah. So it was very easy to feed that. And she turned around and she says, oh, how do you treat all the women you've got on the go? And I remember sitting, I was typing and I looked up and I said to her, actually, I'm gay. And then I just stood up and I walked out the office. And I was like, whoa, the world did not collapse. It hasn't stopped revolving. And I remember walking down the corridor and I got to the stairs to go down and there was a guy coming up the stairs. And I said to him, Stuart. And he goes, yeah, that's I've just come out the closet. And you'd never said this before. And I've never said this before. Oh, and he wow. goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm gay. And he goes, oh, wow. He said, congratulations. <laughs> and I walked off and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I do this whole thing about talking about coming out to different people. Maybe I should write an article about this one day. I don't know. And then I went down to a guy's office and he was putting the kettle on, right? And he says to me, uh, do you want a coffee? I said, yeah, I'm gay, by the way. And he goes, okay. I said, did you hear what I said? He goes, yeah, I heard what you said, but did you hear what I said? Do you want a coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I remember going into McDonald's and it was like, I'll have a Big Mac, French fries, strawberry shake. And by the way, I'm gay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I now suddenly thought, there's people that I'm close to. How am I going to tell them? How are they going to react? That was the challenging part. It was easy to tell people out there, but the people in your inner circle, yeah. that was the challenging part. Because you're literally saying to them, you know, the person you've known is not me. This is actually who I am. Anyway, my cousin, I never forget him. He was driving to work and he rang me up in the morning for something and he's talking away. And then he says, oh, my God, it's these schoolgirls. He said, I can't believe parents would let their kids go out dressed like that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, they've got skirts on. They're looking really. He says, it's wrong. He said, they shouldn't be looking that sexy. And then I said to him, are there any boys with them? What are they wearing? And he goes, why are you asking me that? 
And I said, I'm trying to tell you I'm gay. And he was like, oh, okay, I can't talk now. I'll call you back. And then it got to about three o'clock in the morning and he rang me and he goes, right, I've got questions. And I said, okay. And he goes, first thing, are you happy? Oh, that's beautiful. I said, yeah, that wasn't the beautiful one. This was the beautiful one. Uh I had this friend, Anthony. Now, if you saw Anthony from the outside, Anthony was like a street thug. His favorite word was, you know what I mean when I say the C word? Yes, yes. That was his favorite word to use. And I liked this guy. I could hear him beyond the noise he put out. There was something deeper there. What I realized with him as a friend is that he didn't have the intellectual capacity to express his depth. So a lot of his anger was frustration that he couldn't get this feeling out. He didn't know how to express it. But when I was with him, he knew I could hear it. So that was the basis of our friendship. He came around one day, he's a real alpha male. And I'm thinking, God, you know, this is gonna be explosive. And he came around and I'll never forget, he was sitting on the floor looking through my DVDs for a film. And then he's back to me. And I said, um, Anthony, I've got something to tell you. And he goes, what's that? And I said, I'm gay. And he just went quiet. It was one of those things that it seemed like hours, but it was probably a minute or two. But it was a very intense silence. He put down the DVDs and he turned around and he said to me, I'm sorry if I've ever said anything homophobic to keep you in the closet. And I just burst into tears. It was a beautiful moment, man. I think out of all the places I've come out, that was the one that really impacted me. There was just so much in that statement. There was so much love in that statement, so much respect. Which I felt in when you described his silence, he was giving himself a moment to say, this is a friend, this is somebody I value and I love. And I need to find a way to let him know he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Visually, your words and your imageries are like so great because when you were talking about how you came out at work and you were going out, I was like, this is a great movie montage. Like, I'm gay, I'm gay. (laughs) (laughs) Especially for a lot of us who may not be able to quote unquote hide in the same way. I think that makes the moment even more powerful and more beautiful. But to talk about like combining you know, what you do with Purple Frog Connections and and the documentary that you're featured in, when did you discover the importance of telling your truth and sharing your stories and how that can impact others? That's a very interesting question, Eric. Where I think I started doing it and where my friends think I started doing it are two very different spaces. I thought I was starting to talk when I came out, when I started doing the work. But then my friend said, no, you've always been that kind of person. Back to that, I didn't know who I was. I couldn't see me, but other people saw me and said, you've always been a storyteller. That's who you are. It's just you now have a bigger story to tell. One of the things I realized, I have this drive, motivation, I don't know, impulse, energy to be honest especially with myself I also discovered that vulnerability is a superpower not a weakness 
the more open you allow yourself to be, the more powerfully you will grow. Yes, there will be times where people will come along and hurt you and take advantage of it, but you learn from that. And I look at those people like they're life's chisels. You're helping to carve me into the person I'm becoming. And the other side of it is, as a result of sharing and being so open, the amount of stories that come back to me, the amount of people that will feel like you can hear me. To me, that's the magic. That by sharing your story, it releases other people to share their own. You know, with the documentary, I got an email from this guy in Australia who said, I am a white 59-year-old male. I'm a white, straight 59-year-old male. I have no experience of being gay. I have no experience of being black. But I want to tell you what your documentary did for me. He said there was a question in the documentary that said, who defines you? He said, I have never asked myself that question in my entire life. He said, that now is going to be part of the rest of my life. And I just want to say thank you. That's why I said, when you open up and you share that story, it goes beyond boundaries. It goes beyond cultures. It goes to a very magical place. It allows people to step into that place of, this is who I am, not what I am. You know, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if I hadn't shared my story. We wouldn't be having this interview. I wouldn't have that documentary. Your professional monikers, facilitator, former police officer, speaker, but I like that we wrap this up with your storyteller and that your network of people around you, they saw that and they were waiting for you to embrace that. And I definitely saw that in the documentary that is out now. And again, I'm going to share that. Your honesty and what you shared here and what I saw there can be uncomfortable, but I love that it is because for me saying, well, why am I uncomfortable? And maybe I need to look at parts of myself that I need to continue to unwrap and unfold. So I thank you for being that example. I'll leave you with one last thing. Yes, yes. Being open, being honest doesn't mean you're perfect. <laughs> it means you give up perfection and you embrace the fact that you are beautifully imperfect. It doesn't mean I don't have any pain and I don't have any history. It's just that I've embraced them. They're now part of me. All of it is my experience and all of it has shaped who I am today. I never devalue any of my experience. Thank you for that. Thank you. Where can we find you online? You can go to my website, www.purplefrogs-connections.com. That's probably the best way to get me and you can email me through that. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Good. And, you know, feel free to stay in touch. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.